Hey everyone, and welcome to the Generations United Church podcast, a podcast for Gen U, by Gen U, where we discuss the Bible, church, culture, and all things relevant to a life following Jesus. My name's Luke Williams. I'm the pastor of Gen U's online ministries and young adults. If you are new to Gen U, head over to our website, genuchurch.com. Find out about our services, events, and community life. Today, we are sharing the first conversation from our Beyond the Page series, a series our church has been doing for our Wednesday night gatherings, where Pastor Tommy Brown, our spiritual and community formation pastor, interviews different authors. This conversation was with Dr. Derek Vreeland. Derek is the discipleship pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He received his doctor of ministry degree from Asbury Theological Seminary, and he has written several books, including the book mentioned in this interview titled N.T. Wright and the Revolutionary Cross. So I'd encourage you, check out more about Dr. Vreeland and all of his works at DerekVreeland.com. The topic discussed in this interview centers around the crucifixion of Jesus. In particular, something that is referred to as the atonement, which is just a term about what happened on the cross and why it happened. And as you'll hear, there are many ways people understand Jesus' atonement. This was a deep conversation. And if you finish listening and you still have questions, don't worry. All we need to know is what John 3.16 tells us. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but inherit eternal life. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Well, uh, I'm so glad that so many of you showed up tonight. And again, if you have a question, just raise your hand and we're going to get right uh, to you. Uh, And without any further delay, I want to introduce to you our guest for tonight, uh, Dr. Derek Vreeland probably would prefer Pastor Derek Vreeland, or maybe just Derek. But, just uh, Derek. Derek, we're so glad that you're with us uh, tonight, and I would love it if you would just take a minute and tell us about yourself, and uh, then we're going to jump into uh, the topic that uh, that I'll introduce here in just a minute. Well, thank you, Tommy, and hello, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, fellow Star Wars nerds. Um, I might just have to book a flight and come down for May the 4th. Uh, we are big Star Wars nerds here in the Vreeland home. That sounds like great fun. Uh, but uh, thank you, Tommy, for inviting me uh, to be a part of this series. And um, I think we're going to have a good time tonight. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, likewise. So tell us, you just got back off of a trip did you go solo? Did you take your family with you? You've got a few a few kids and everything. How how did that go? Tell us what you just did. Yeah, I just got back in town today. I was on a four day backpacking trip. Um, I live in Northwest Missouri, St. Joseph, Missouri, which is north of Kansas City, uh, which is just north of well, what used to be the reigning Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. And I'm so sorry um, for your loss. I, yeah, it was rough. It 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 was rough. Uh, both the loss in the Super Bowl and then losing that AFC Championship game, we're still not over it. But uh, yeah, so we're in Northwest Missouri. But I was backpacking for four days in Southeast Missouri in the Ozarks. Uh, did not see any hillbillies or moonshiners, uh, but apparently they live in the hills down there. 
but uh, spent about four days backpacking with some friends and uh, did not bring the family. Um, I, uh, I've been married for about 26 years to my high school sweetheart, Jenny. And we have three boys, uh, two who are now adults and uh, one who's still uh, in school. Uh, Dylan's our youngest in the sixth grade, and then Taylor's our middle, and then Wesley's our oldest. Uh, he's married. Our oldest is married to Maggie, and uh, they announced about two months ago that they're pregnant, so expecting our first grandchild in September. So uh, I had been aware of you and your writing and, and some of the work that you're doing. And um, then we figured out we're actually both being published by the same publisher. We were kind of, I guess, maybe unaware of the fact that we're in the same author group. So we connected and then we figured out we were in the same group. Yeah. Um, but your role there at Word of Life Church uh, with Pastor Brian Zahn, your, your role there is very similar to what I do here, but tell yes. us about some of what you're what you're doing up there, and then take a minute and just go ahead and tell us about some of the writing work that you've done uh, over the years, sure. and then we'll just jump right into the the topic for tonight. Yeah, so my title is discipleship pastor, which means I'm a pastor pastor because all pastors are making disciples, but uh, similar to a spiritual formation pastor. So I'm a part of our teaching team uh, for Sunday mornings, and then I lead uh, our Wednesday night midweek um, activities and oversee our small groups and our Celebrate Recovery and all the other classes and workshops, uh, what used to be called adult education. Uh, but we realized that discipleship's more than just the intellectual stuff. It's also forming our hearts and in Christ. So uh, oversee all those type of ministries on the teaching team. And then just as one of the associate pastors end up doing a lot of little things throughout the week, uh, I do a lot of our uh, pastoral care as well. Uh, so yeah, that's my role here. Very similar to what you're doing there, Tommy. And uh, then also uh, writing, uh, which for me has been a part of my pastoral vocation. So as a pastor, I'm really a teacher at heart. Uh, that's really my primary spiritual gift. And so I teach um, in classes, in facilitating small groups, in preaching on Sunday, but also writing, I think, is a part of my teaching ministry. And uh, so I've written a handful of books, uh, just wrapped up uh, my uh, manuscript for Nav Press, sent that off. It'll be two weeks this Friday, which is on purpose. I sent the manuscript off on tax day, April 15th, and then got ready to go backpacking. So I planned the backpacking trip. When I got the uh, manuscript done, that was a six-month process of writing and getting the manuscript ready. And uh, so that's off to the editors at Nav Press, and that book will come out uh, next year. Um, it's a book that, it's a discipleship book because all my books have that discipleship theme. Uh, but it's, a, uh, it's envisioning uh, the Christian life with Jesus as the Lamb of God at the center. So that's what's coming up uh, next. It'll come out next uh, summer, actually. So that's what we've been writing most recently. And so I just took a, a small group on Wednesday nights, and many of them are here tonight, uh, through Dr. N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. And you, they, you, if, if you're not aware of some of Derek's writing, he is, in my opinion, the, the leading or one of the leading people who take Dr. Wright's materials and then writes like reader's guides to Dr. Wright's books. So you've done a couple of those along the way. 
uh, as well. So if you if you look up Derek Vreeland, V-R-E-E-L-A-N-D on Amazon, you'll you'll see the books that uh, that he's authored over time. There, there's a theme in in much of your teaching and writing and. Um, just as, as, you know, what I've seen of you on social media, you do a lot of, of thinking and, and teaching on the cross and on atonement and on what was happening on the cross. And, uh, I've, I found that to be very helpful. And for my own life, there are a handful of topics that, uh, I'm very interested in, uh, that I've, I've committed to make topics of study over the coming years. And, you know, you're taught things about the cross. You read things in the Bible about the cross. But when you try to explain it like to a five-year-old, sometimes you're just like, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Okay, like what, what, is, what does that, that mean? And there's, there's so much going on there. And I, I realize for me, it's even more that, that I can understand. And there are also various ways of understanding what happened on the cross. And I think eventually we get to a point to where we're like, I don't know that I can fully comprehend what's going on on the cross. But I would love for us to take a crack tonight at, at, at exploring, okay, what was, what was happening uh, there? It's, it's not the easiest thing in the world to, when you really back up and think about it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to be able to explain and convey. Um, and sometimes I just feel inadequate, you know, and my words fail. So I, I would love to maybe start there. It, it's a lot to take in. So maybe you can yeah. help us with, with what's going on there. Well, yeah, it's easy to say, uh, Jesus died for my sins. I, I think that's, um, even people who aren't Christians, you know, um, have at least, I think as, as, Time passes, you know, these up and coming generation maybe doesn't have that same knowledge, but I know uh, I was in high school in the 90s. I graduated high school in 1992. And I remember being a senior in high school and a young lady was doing a book report. And she said, um, and the main character of this story is a Christ figure. And he gives his life just like Jesus died for our sins. And I was the sort of local Jesus freak at my high school. So I got baptized when I was 11. And uh, by 15, I was all in uh, with Jesus. And by 16, felt a call to ministry. And you know, I'm wearing the Christian t-shirts. I'm talking about Jesus at my high school campus. I was leading a prayer gathering in the morning and a Bible study uh, in the afternoon after you know, school. And uh, so I remember hearing her say that. And I thought, how can you say that and be so emotionless about it? Because I perked up because my whole life was changed in a response uh, to the gospel. And at the core, at the center, at the heart of our gospel message is Jesus' death on the cross. And uh, so before we get too deep, and uh, I, I'd like to do some depth. I think that people would enjoy that. And we'll look at a, a number of scriptures, as much time as we have tonight. I, I first want to say that you don't have to understand with a lot of depth or be able to articulate the meaning of the cross in order to experience its saving power, right? So Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 18 that the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so to simply uh, read and enter into the story of Jesus' death for us, to confess with your mouth that you believe that Jesus died uh, for our sins, that's enough in order to experience God's saving power. I think, though, some people see the cross as sort of the entry point. Um, okay, I have to I have to believe in my heart, right, that Jesus died for my sins, that Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead. I have to believe these things in order to get in to the Christian faith. And now I'm done with that cross stuff. Um, but certainly the New Testament, and Paul in particular, won't let us do that. You know, at one point, Paul says, I want to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. So I think that you can experience the saving and the transforming work of the cross without understanding with a whole lot of depth. But I challenge people to continue to reflect and to go deep on the meaning of the cross, because I think that the cross is not just uh, what we need to get into the faith, but I think it shapes our heart so that ultimately we become a, a cruciform people. Cruciform means cross-shaped people. And so I'm, I'm with Paul that I, I want to know nothing among you but, but Christ crucified. And so for my own spiritual journey, uh, I think a focus of the cross is so important. But if people get through tonight's uh, conversation and they feel confused or like, I don't, I, I'm just not tracking with you, it's okay. I mean, you can still be rescued and formed by the cross. Uh, but I think there's such value if we want to grow in Christ's likeness uh, to pursue this with some depth. And I think that the way that we understand the cross can either be an invitation to ongoing growth or it can actually, for some people, become a block to growth. If the, I think there are really helpful understandings of the cross, and mm-hmm. then there are less than helpful understandings of the cross. And so the, the, I love the way you said it, that the cross is both the entry to the faith and it's the thing that continually forms us. My experience of some Christians have been, has been, they believe that Jesus died for their sins and now they're going to go to a better place when they die. But what you're saying is actually the cross is a continual ongoing part of us being formed into the image of Christ to live this cross-shaped life as, as you were saying. So I, I love the fact that any of us in the room, and we're gonna, I, this congregation is one that is okay with their, their brain sweating, all right? And okay. that's one of the things I've appreciated about them. They're okay with their brain sweating, and they're, they're, they're okay to be stretched, and as long as, as long as they know we're dealing with the Bible, as we're a biblical, you know, a biblically yeah. functioning community here as best as we can. What yeah. I've appreciated about some of what you've done is you've shown me some things in the Bible that I was like, I've never looked at that that way sure. before. So I would love to explore some of that territory tonight. If you could help yeah. us, you know, trek even through the scriptures and understand how do we arrive at a place to where a man on a cross means something? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just start in the scripture. Um, let's start 1 Corinthians 15. Because we've 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 quoted this a couple times, but so we can put a pin in it. People know where it is. First Corinthians fifteen, uh, verse three. For I handed on to you as a first importance what I in turn had received. So um, 
you know, some biblical scholars would say that Paul here is handing to the church of Corinth uh, a, a creedal statement, something that uh, he had learned early on. Um, and so this is what it is. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So this is, here it is in its basic statement. Jesus, of course, he's the, the Christ, right? Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And so you say you're a biblically functioning community. The question that a biblically functioning community asks uh, at, at this verse is, what does it mean by the scriptures? And so what I've seen, some people, what they want to do is they want to search, kind of, kind of hunt and peck throughout the Old Testament to find a couple of verses that talk about suffering or sacrifice or blood or atonement and say, oh, okay, well, Christ died for our sins in accordance with a few of these verses that I can find in the Bible. I actually think that the scriptures uh, here is not just individual verses, but I think it's the entirety of the Old Testament. So the scriptures for Paul didn't include the New Testament because Paul hadn't finished writing the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's Genesis to Malachi. That's what he has in mind. There you go. Genesis to Malachi. So the the Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures here is the Hebrew scriptures, the old scripture or the Old Testament rather. And uh, I like to think of it as the scriptures here is the story that the Old Testament is telling. Now, there's lots of different kinds of writing in the Old Testament. There's wisdom literature. There's psalms, which are songs and prayers. Uh, There's lots of history. Uh, There's the prophets, which are like poetry. But I see some coherence in the Old Testament, that that there is a story that's being told. But the story of the Old Testament for us ends with Malachi, and it ends with a bit of a, of a cliffhanger. Um, so if, if people have Bibles, if you want to go with me over to Malachi, I'm going to kind of be flipping through my Bible to different passages. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can follow along, but if you go to Malachi chapter four, which is the very end of the old Testament, it's a bit of a cliffhanger because it talks about the coming day of the Lord. It talks about, uh, this is Malachi 4, 5. Lo, I will send you the great prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Uh, He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Dun, dun, dun. You know, it, it, it ends real abrupt. And so then between Malachi 4 and Matthew 1, you have hundreds and hundreds of years of history. So for Paul to say that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, I think he's really trying to say in accordance with this story that's being told from Genesis to Malachi, a story that's looking for a conclusion, a story that's looking for an ending. And well, of course, we believe that that Jesus is that ending. Uh, So Paul says in uh, Romans 10, verse 4, that Christ is the the ending point, the termination point. The Greek word he used there is telos, which means the completion, the perfection, the full maturation, the end. Uh, Christ is the, the end point of the law. 
Of course, Jesus himself said, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? The law and the prophets, that's one way of speaking of the Hebrew scriptures. He says, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So Jesus comes as this fulfillment, the, the, the conclusion, the ending, the, the termination point. So we can look from Genesis, and, and really, I, I do want to tack on the New Testament, because of course, for Christians, we have two Testaments. And, and with the New Testament, you see this beautiful story that starts in Genesis with creation, and the crowning achievement of God's creation is the creation of humanity, of Adam and Eve. And we see God walking with them in the cool of the day, in the Garden of Eden. And then we fast forward the story to the end in Revelation 21, the second to last chapter. We see the uh, new Jerusalem descending from heaven to earth. Now, those of you who went through Surprise by Hope, Uh, Tom Wright makes a big deal of this. The trajectory is not from earth to heaven, but from heaven to earth. And I think it's Revelation 21, 5, where it says, and God will dwell with his people forever. And so we see this beautiful story from Genesis to Revelation fulfilled in Christ about God's desire to be with God's people. Now, the large, uh, the biggest part of the story of the Old Testament is God's covenant with Israel, the the children of Abraham, and how they continue to mess things up. So the story of the Old Testament is, well, it starts with creation, and then Genesis 3 is corruption. Actually, from Genesis 3 all the way through the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11 is the story of corruption as there's exponential evil and idolatry and violence, and it's awful. And then Genesis 12 starts the next act of this story, and it's covenant. That's when God chooses Abraham. And then all of that gets fulfilled in Jesus. But in the Old Testament, God desired a relationship with his own special people. The problem is Israel continued to fall into idolatry. And as soon as they started worshiping idols, then they were practicing immorality, injustice, and then judgment would come. And then they would turn back to faithfulness to God. And they went through these cycles over and over and over. Because when Israel was walking in fellowship with God, following all God's commands, doing what God wanted, then this this dream of God dwelling with God's people uh, was made manifest. But because of their sin, because of their transgressions, which again, typically I think of Israel's sins as the three I's, idolatry, immorality, and injustice. And the first leads to the second two. Uh, Because of their sins, they would be separated from God. Not that God ever cast Israel out, because even with the exile, which was the ultimate judgment, for their um, idolatry, immorality, and injustice. They were sent as exiles to Babylon. Even with that, in places like Hosea, you see God's love for Israel. God always desired to have this relationship. But because of their sin, it caused a, uh, a, a break in that relationship. And so atonement became a way for this separation to 
be healed, for this damaged relationship to be healed. And so, again, back to uh, leave Malachi here and go back to 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, it's in accordance with this long and, and, and winding story of Israel, which includes atonement. So, and if you have a question here, this would be a good time to ask it. What, I just want to reflect back to you some of the things I heard you say, which I thought you laid out beautifully and clearly. That in the beginning, we walked with God in the cool of the evening on earth. And then through creation, then corruption, sin enters the, the story. God right. establishes a covenant. Okay, and Jesus plays a role in this returning to relationship. But one of the things I want to make sure we get for those that were not in the surprise by hope thing is the end game is not humankind leaving the earth to go to be with God forever. Although when you die, you will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. The end game or to use that word telos, where the telescope, where the whole thing is going at, at the end of the thing, is actually resurrection. That's what we celebrate on Easter, right? So resurrected bodies, that ultimately there will be a day where Jesus will return to earth, your body will be resurrected, and as it was in the beginning, humans walking with God on earth, so shall it be in the end, humans walking with God in a new heavens and a new earth. So that story that he just told you starts in a garden and ultimately ends up in a garden, us on earth together. But between there, we have creation, corruption, covenant, Jesus plays a role in getting that back on track, so on and so forth, right? Are we, are we tracking with that? Okay, we've got two questions. I, I saw one hand and one scratch. All right, Chris. The three eyes were idolatry, and that leads to another one was injustice, which was the third one, and I can't remember the second one. Immorality. Very good. Were there more C's, by the way? I felt like we had more C's in there. Well, yeah, so the the five C's, so creation, corruption, covenant, which starts with Abraham and is fulfilled in Christ. Um. well, I mean, Christ and Christ, the fourth C is Christ and the church, depending on what C, but uh, I usually say Christ. Uh, and then the fifth C is new creation. So creation, corruption, covenant, Christ and Christ church, and then new creation. And one thing that I like that you brought out that we don't often hear brought out is exile was a form of both God's judgment and God's grace. It's God's judgment because he's sending them out. He's sending them away whenever they move into idolatry and injustice, etc. The judgment for that is to be sent into a foreign land, right? The grace is that God, through that process, is trying to restore the relationship the whole time. Does that make sense? So I think that will play into our story of the cross even as well. So there was another. And that's an important part. That's an important theme in the Old Testament is to see that that God's judgment 
um, was from a father's heart who desired to correct something in his children. Um, so we speak of God's judgment as being restorative. Um, and, and that's pretty consistent throughout the story of scripture. So again, I think that was great the way you said that, but the exile was not only God's act of judgment, but an act of grace. Um, it's, it's God's way of saying, if you want to worship false gods, and if you want to treat your family and neighbors poorly, in other words, if you don't want to love God and love neighbor, then I'm going to allow you to experience the full consequences of those actions. Experiencing those consequences can feel awful, but often that's what it takes in order to come back. It's very similar to um, alcoholism. So anyone who has an alcoholic in your family, or if you know the story of someone who's sober, who has a battled addiction, the most loving thing a family can do with an addict is allow them to suffer the consequences of their own actions. It is painful, it hurts, it's tearful, but it's actually an act of grace. And so judgment in the Old Testament, we see it over and over and over. And I love the language of the Old Testament because sometimes God, and depending on what translation you use, right? You use more like NIV or New Living Translation, or even the message, you know, God is like, I am put, I'm put out. I am over you people. I am done. Uh, particularly in some of the prophets. It's like, I'm casting you out. I never want to see you again. Uh, you know, that's why you have to read all the prophets together as a whole um, because there's those, those moments that's communicated, but there's also then these moments of uh, you are my people and I love you and, and I want to woo you back. Um, and uh, I'm and sending so, yeah, you out, uh, but I can't quit you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Lord, so you, I think oh, that's, that, that's helpful. Laura, did you have a question there? I want to make sure we get it. I did. Um, as far as uh, people's sin, I, I thought that separation, mm-hmm. and that separation, that separation, that break. So sin causes separation and break in, in relationship. And therefore needing that atonement. Needing atonement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. It's the question. It's the question. And Derek is ready for it. And maybe you want to answer it right now or not. So there, there is relationship. There is covenant. There's a fracture in that relationship because of the three eyes, as you say. Why, why is the death of a life and the shedding of blood necessary to restore that fractured relationship? Now, you may be leading uh, us to that point later, but I'll defer to where the guide wants to take us along the journey. <laughs> of course, that's the, that's the big question. Um, and, you know, it can be answered a different, different way. Let me answer it this way. The death of an innocent man, it's not necessary for God. It's much more necessary, for, I think, for us. In other words, it's not necessary for God uh, because God could choose to rescue us any way that God chooses. Um, In fact, if I were the creator and God of the universe, I would have chosen a totally different way of rescuing the world. I mean, the whole gospel story, which really starts at Christmas, right? Starts with the birth of Jesus. Like, this this is not the way I would have saviors come. I mean, seriously, a baby born in a barn? I mean, come on. Can we do better than that? Um, but this is how God has chosen to save 
um, in part because I think that God has chosen to work with humanity. So if we just want to talk about, for example, forgiveness, can God forgive sin without a blood sacrifice? That would be a question. The answer would be yes. In fact, we see that all throughout the Gospels. Uh, We see Jesus forgiving sin, and that's what often got him in trouble, right? It wasn't just healing on the Sabbath, but he would, and it's interesting, he would do miracles, right? The lame man, he heals the lame man. And then uh, he says something to the effect to the Pharisees, well, just so you know, I have authority on heaven and earth. He says, hey, lame man, and your sins are forgiven, and that's what upsets the Pharisees more than the healing miracle. It wasn't the miracle. It was that he forgave because like, who does he think he is like God or something? Uh, Because only God has the authority to forgive. So in one perspective, uh, forgiveness is really about who has the authority to forgive. God has the authority to forgive and God actually does forgive Um, in Jesus. We see it throughout the gospels without blood sacrifice which still begs the question, okay, okay, (laughs) so then why did Jesus have to die? Um, I would say this, and this helps, I think, go deep. That is a theological question, right? Why did Jesus have to die is a theological question, and it's a good theological question. It's a question that the church has been asking and discussing for 2,000 years, And there isn't one answer. There's actually a lot of answers. And that's important to remember. So you will hear of atonement theories. There's theories of the atonement. And for me, the theory, I'm not as interested in the theories as I'm interested in what the scripture is actually saying. So the theological question, why did Jesus have to die? I think is found in historical by asking historical questions. So if I could make this line real succinct, I think that our theological answers come from historical questions. So we then are going to look at the death of Jesus in its historical context. And by the way, I think this is just really good. This is a good way to do Bible study, right? You do your Bible reading devotionally, however you do it. But good Bible study tries to read the scripture in its historical context. Now, I don't I don't have time. I, I know I'm not going to have time to get to everything, but maybe if we can go to Luke's account real quick, I'm going to point out just a couple of verses. Um, Luke 20... Three and verse 33. Because again, if we want we want theological answers, we have to ask historical questions. And so for me, I'm asking what were first century Jewish people asking for? What were they looking for? What were they longing for? What was the problem that the, the cross then becomes the solution? And in, in all the gospel uh, writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's, it's repeated, but it's, it's good here. And, and I'm just, I want to read the whole passage and I can't. So I'm going to pluck verses out uh, just for, to make a point. So, but to get started, um, Luke 23, verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. 
Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right? So this is this, you know, one of the sayings of Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them. You know, so this is marking the, the cross as this act of forgiveness. But it's not just forgiveness. The cross here is also revealing something to us about the kingdom of God. And this is the part of the atonement I think that's most often missed. That not only does the cross rescue us, but the cross also reveals. And in part, it reveals to us what the nature of, of, of the kingdom of God is really like. And the reason I say that is um, all the gospel writers, and Luke in particular, continues to reverberate with these kingdom themes. Now, I'm going to skip down again just for the sake of time, but you can read the whole chapter, read all of 23 in context, but just to make a few points. So skipping down to verse 37, um, and this is the soldiers who are mocking him. And they were saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38, there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And so I've had people over the years ask me, well, does the cross have anything to do with the kingdom of God? I always want to pull this verse out and say, here's your sign. Like literally there was a sign on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. Now, of course, the Romans meant it as mockery, right? But remember where we started, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being who are perishing, but those that's being saved is the power of God. Um, and then going on down, verse 42, um, one of the criminals says, uh, then he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, right? And I'm going to keep on moving down. So then Jesus dies, and now I'm in verse 50. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, right? Remember Joseph of Arimathea. And verse 51, he was from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. Now, we won't have time to get to Acts chapter 1, but if you remember, Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to his disciples, and what is he talking to them about for a period of 40 days? He was talking to them about the kingdom of God. And before Jesus tells them that they're going to receive uh, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, right? Power from on high to be witnesses. The disciples ask Jesus, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Now, remember the kingdom of God. I say remember as if you're in my own congregation, but you know the, king, the kingdom of God um, is God's authority. It's God's rule and reign. Because again, if we go back to the story of scripture uh, in the Old Testament, God was to be the king of Israel, but they all got envious, right? They're like a bunch of teenagers, right? Looking around at the other teenagers and they're like, all the other nations have kings. We want an earthly king. And so God tells the prophet uh, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me, but go ahead, go ahead. They want a king, go ahead and give them a king. Um, but kingdom is Old Testament language for relationship, right? So the relationship we have with God is not a buddy-buddy kind of relationship, right? God is king. And Jesus, we believe, is, is king. Christ is not Jesus' last name, but it's a title. A Christ is the Messiah, the Jewish king. 
So our relationship with God is one as God as king, Jesus as king. So I haven't answered the question, why did an innocent man have to die? But when we go back into history, we have to start there and saying, wow, there's a lot of kingdom of God stuff here. Joseph of Arimathea waiting for the kingdom of God. The disciples asked Jesus, okay, you've been talking to us about the kingdom and you died and you rose. Great. Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Because the first century people of God were in their ancestral homeland, right? They, the, the Persians had let them back and the, even the temple had kind of been rebuilt. Herod's temple was not like Solomon's temple. They were in Jerusalem, but they were still under the oppression of the Romans. So uh, kind of summing up a few things and I'll pause for a second. Um, the death of an innocent man was not so much what God needed, but it's what we needed. In part, it's what we needed in order to see this is how the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes not by force and might, but the kingdom of God, this, this reestablished relationship comes through loving sacrifice. Now, I have more to say, but let me pause there because that was a lot. I want to I wanna bring you to Hebrews 9, a scripture passage you're familiar with. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How do yes. you put that in conversation with Jesus walked around forgiving people all the time without the shedding of his own blood, without the shedding of blood in the temple? How do you put that in conversation with, with those actions? There's a couple of different things we can do. And, and Hebrews really is a great book for atonement. I mean, if you want to do a study of atonement, just doing verse by verse through Hebrews, I think is excellent. I think there's a couple of things we have to do. One, there is no forgiveness. There's no remission of sin is one translation without the shedding of blood uh, is in nine. But if you keep on reading um, in Hebrews 10, uh, verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And so there is, now, now we're getting into the deep weeds. There seems to be this, this complexity with sacrifice that in one sense, there's value in blood sacrifice, but maybe it's not what God wanted all along. And I think what the way I work with that in Hebrews is I see God accommodating God's self again to humanity. So when the sacrificial system was created in the old covenant, this is what all the pagans did, right? Blood sacrifice was common in the ancient Semitic world. And I think God accommodated himself to a people that would understand that because it's just what you did. So, but, so it's not God needs the blood right. in order to forgive sins. It's we need the blood in order to full, feel forgiven. Right, because Hebrews 10, 4, and it's quoting from the Psalms. I'd have to look it up real quick. I won't, but it's, it's quoting from the Psalms. Um, that sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Uh, I think God accommodated God's self to people who understood blood sacrifice, 
um, and incorporated that in God's covenant relationship with Israel. So we have this sacrificial system. And, um, but the reoccurring theme in both the Levitical law, when it talks about blood sacrifice and here in Hebrews, it's in a couple of places, is that the purpose of the blood was a cleansing, right? So, um, I could take all, there's all sorts of verses. The one in Hebrews, I think is important is verse, uh, chapter nine, verse 26 But as it is, he, Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, is explaining atonement from an Old Testament perspective from the law of Moses in Leviticus, that one of the effects of the atonement is that it cleanses us from sin. So that we, you know, we, use, we don't use this language as much as we used to in the church, but we talk about, uh, you know, w- being washed in the blood of the lamb, you know, that, that language in Revelation, uh, that they have white robes that have been cleansed by, by the blood of the lamb. So there is something about blood sacrifice that's, that's very cleansing. And, 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 and let me take a little a, a deep dive into that because I wanted to get there eventually before we run out of time. Um, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is where in the Old Testament, the uh, Day of Atonement is described. Uh, it's Yom Kippur, which is still practiced uh, by you know Orthodox Jewish people today. And so in the Day of Atonement, you have the whole process. I don't have time to give you all the whole thing. Again, the whole chapter is was it like 34 verses, but I always encourage people, read the whole chapter, not just the verses that I pull out. But here's what I want to focus on is what's the purpose for this day of atonement? So for those who are familiar with it, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which was the uh, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. There would be two cherubim and there would be blood that would be sprinkled. Uh, there's other things that happens. You can read that all in Leviticus 16. And the Ark is my the place where is, God's presence dwelled. That was right. the, God, the physical kind of glory is dwelling there. So why is that blood being sprinkled or what's one of the effects? Um, so the verse, I'm just going to, again, put a pen in just one verse, Leviticus 1630. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you, right? Because again, atonement is what we need, right? Not God. Atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins. You shall be made clean before the Lord. So the metaphor here, or the idea, the imagery is that sin, not only does it break this relationship and cause separation, but sin has this pollutant effect, right? So pollution, you can have this beautiful body of water, right? And just a little bit of a pollutant and it just destroys everything. I mean, I mean, think of the oil spill that happened uh, down in the Gulf, not too long ago. That's in your area of the world. Um, I mean, you take all the oil that was spilled compared to all the, you know, the ocean water. It doesn't take a whole lot of pollutant to really destroy something. And so the Day of Atonement here, again, looking at it from a Jewish perspective, was to cleanse. It had this cleansing effect. So not only uh, is a relationship sort of sort of brought back together, 
but what we experience is a is a cleansing. And so when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming in John chapter one, uh, he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." And so, for me, I think this is really the heart of atonement: is that the atonement, which again is for us, is God's way of accommodating God's self to humanity in culture using something blood sacrifice that they would understand so that it might cleanse, wash, purify. There's also imagery of liberating and setting free uh, us from sin. Now, again, um, does God need that in order for God to forgive us? No, but we need to be set free from the power of sin, we need to be cleansed from the impurity of sin. Yeah, there's, um, there's let me a pause there. There's a passage in Hebrews that says one of the things that the Levitical sacrificial system, animal sacrifices, the one thing it couldn't do that the blood of Jesus does, the one thing it couldn't do is remove the guilt in your conscience. Yes. So even there, what you're seeing is humankind carries within itself this guilt before God. And right. how do we deal with this guilt before God? God in his right. mercy and his grace gives us the law to show us where we have failed and gives us a means to bring about correction or remedy or restoration or atonement so that we can be in relationship with God once more. I do want to ask you, though, there is a scripture somewhere. I'm going to quote it like the New Testament often does. Somewhere it is written that <laughs> God cannot look upon sin, right? And the usual way that we deal with that is, well, God can't look upon sin, and so now God looks at me through Jesus and so on. Is It, it gives this idea of like there's this, there's this God that, that can't look upon sin, and so in order to deal with that, God sends his son and then punishes him, pours out his wrath upon him. And, and essentially, some could say God sacrificed his own son. Let's push the language a little bit. Some could yeah. say God murdered his own son so that we could be forgiven and come back into relationship with God. And there's an image of an angry father and a really nice and kind, blonde-haired, blue-eyed son, Opie Taylor, right? There, he's, yeah, I say that, but I, he, he really is. He's, he's the consummate American in so many minds, right? So there's an angry father, and then there's a really kind son, and the father just has to destroy him in so many ways so that everybody else's sons can have a relationship with the father who would destroy his own son. Yeah. which is not a safe universe to live in if you're a child. Right. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the picture you have painted, I do think there's a lot of people that that's their image of atonement, their image of God. What's interesting is if someone were to write down exactly the way you painted that picture, I would say, and where is that in scripture again? I mean, because I just, I, I, I've heard things like that. I'm like, where, where is this? And I can't remember the verse. I think it is in Haggai or Habakkuk. I get those H books. Nobody reads stuff. them. 
I read them. I just can't remember. Uh, God is too holy to look upon sin. If If you read the whole verse, it's too holy to look upon sin and not do something. It's actually a cry of, uh, for justice, for God to act where there's been injustice. But this idea that God is too holy to look upon sin, uh, like, and where is this in the Bible? Because yeah, let's just fast forward uh, from, from Hosea Haggai, where that is, to, to John chapter one, right? So John has, John, one of John's themes in John's gospel is that Jesus shows us what God is like. So listen to these words, John chapter one, verse 17 and 18. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Now pause for a second. I'm like, brother John, do you know the Old Testament? Because there's all sorts of visions and revelations of God. Okay. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Now, John repeats this throughout. Uh, Philip at one point says, just show us the father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. We were talking about Hebrews. The opening of Hebrews says that in, in years past, God spoke through the holy prophets, but now he is speaking to us through his son. Yeah. He's the exact so, imprint of his nature. It says exact imprint of his nature, right? And Paul in Colossians says he's he's the exact image of the divine nature. So Jesus, as the Son of God, shows us what God is like. Now, when we see Jesus in the Gospels, do we see Jesus when he encounters sin going, Oh, no, sorry, I just covered my camera. Sorry. Oh no, I can't, I can't look at you. I can't, I can't look at sin. You're too, you, you adulterous woman. I can't even look at you. All right, boys, throw your rocks. You know, no, that when Jesus as the embodiment of the heart of the father, it's Jesus, according to John 1 19, who shows us what the father is like when Jesus encounters sin, he doesn't turn away. He's drawn towards it so that he can transform it and redeem it and forgive it and rescue it. So this idea that God's too holy to look upon sin um, doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. And it also uh, creates a theological problem because we believe in one God. So we believe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the members of the Trinity, are one divine nature in essence without division or separation. And it wouldn't make sense from the perspective of the Trinity to say one part of the Trinity had to turn its back on another part of the Trinity. Um, that that would not hold water, I mean, historically. So this whole idea that God's too holy to look upon sin doesn't match what scripture teaches us. Um, and the idea that God would pour out his wrath on his son, again, I ask, where is that in scripture? Now, the scripture does use the language of the anger of God. Wrath is just an archaic English word uh, for uh, anger. The Greek word is uh, orge, te orge. And we, we see that in Romans in particular, Paul uses that language. But I think it's important to recognize that the wrath of God is not literal anger, but it is a metaphor uh, that reveals something to us about God. So, and that makes some people nervous. I don't know why, because scripture talks about 
the, the, the righteous right arm of the Lord or the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh, God doesn't have eyes. God doesn't have a righteous arm. Now I know Jesus and the incarnation. Okay, set that aside. Incarnation always throws a monkey wrench and everything. Uh, but, but God doesn't literally have an eye, but God sees all. God doesn't have a righteous right arm, but he's all powerful. Uh, God doesn't have literal anger, but God judges. So wrath is particularly in Romans when Paul's using that word, he's using it in a human way. And, and so got to go here real quick. I don't want to, we'll take questions just a second, but I have to, this is, when I read this verse, I wasn't, I was in my regular Bible reading uh, time. I wasn't even doing any kind of study. I saw this verse and it leaped out at me when I was in a process of trying to understand the wrath of God. So it's Romans three and verse five, Romans three, five. Now he's going to go on in this chapter to talk about atonement. And we'll, we'll look at that in a moment, but notice how he talks about wrath. So this is Romans 3, 5. Paul writes, but if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? And then in my translation, um, this is the new revised standard version. There's a little uh, parenthetical statement. Paul says, I speak in a human way. So when he uses this phrase, and he's asking it as a rhetorical question, is God unjust to inflict wrath upon us? He says, now I'm, I'm using this in, in a human way. He's using metaphorical language. God doesn't have an anger problem, right? That he, that he, that he, that he vents, but God is a judge and God does judge and discipline those whom he loves. And any parent uh, knows that when you, as an earthly parent, when you discipline out of anger, and raise your hand if you've ever done that in the last month. Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm guilty, right? Whenever you discipline out of anger, you know that's not right. right? That, that, that's not a healthy form of parenting. And so God doesn't judge out of a literal heart of anger. It's not like God has literal anger, like, I'm really mad today, and now I'm going to let them have it. Um, rather, God, who is, who is love, right? John in his letter, first John twice, God is love. So out of God's love, God does judge, right? Out of his love for Israel, God sent them into exile. And so God does judge, but it doesn't come from a place of anger. So I think if we take Romans 3, 5 and what Paul says about wrath, I'm speaking in a human way. I'm speaking in human metaphor. If we take that forward, then in places like Romans 5, 8, where it says that we will be, uh, we're justified by his blood and saved by the wrath to come. That wrath is not literal anger that God has somehow collected in a jar and is pouring out on Jesus. That's not what scripture says. What scripture says is that this wrath stuff is a human way of speaking, human metaphor. We're being saved from future judgment because there is a judgment to come, right? All Christians everywhere. Um, particularly those formed by the creeds will say, we believe that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So we're, we're rescued from judgment, but there's no rescue from literal anger and wrath because God doesn't have literal anger and wrath and nowhere in scripture. Is there any reference to God pouring that on Jesus? So again, I think if we go back to the scriptures and ask good historical questions and read them in their historical context, 
I think it helps us to untangle some of the knots that's created by some of these atonement theories. So I want you to ask questions. So get your question ready. Yeah, that was a lot right I, I want to just read something because you touched on it a moment ago. While they're looking for their questions, okay. looking for their questions as if they've lost them, um, <laughs> I want to read something because you touched on it a moment ago. Jesus prayed from the cross, and you would say, well, there was separation because he a moment ago said you can't actually have separation within one the Trinity, within one. Right. That, that's what you said, yes? Right. Okay. So my God, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus prayed from the cross, right? Yes. But in the Jewish mind, to start the prayer is to complete the prayer. And Psalm 22 is a prayer. It's like if I were to say happy birthday to you, you would say happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Tommy, right? You can't get the song out of your head. Baby shark, 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 shark. Yeah, it's in there now. This is the song that does. So here's how this goes. Here's when Jesus starts the prayer in the Jewish mind is to pray the whole thing. Listen, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer and by night, but I find no rest. Well, number one, that was not at Jesus's experience throughout his whole life. Number one, okay? He's, he's vocalizing a human emotion, identifying with us at our moment of deepest despair. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. In the same Psalm, you can have feelings of abandonment and feelings of closeness. And that's the human experience. And Jesus is suffering in that way as a human would suffer and identifying with us so that he can be a high priest that can say, I've been there. I see you, right? So it isn't that God separates from Jesus on the cross if you read the entire, the entire thing. There's never a moment where the Spirit of God was absent from Jesus. It's theologically impossible. Even in the grave, the Spirit of God. Where shall I go from your spirit? The psalmist prayed. Shall I rise up to the heights of the mountains? Shall I make my bed in shale or haze, the grave? Well, even there, your, your spirit would, would find me. How can, God, how can the psalmist say that even in the grave, your spirit would be with me if the spirit of God will not be with Jesus in the grave? And how can the spirit of God be with Jesus in the grave and not be with Jesus on the cross if the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? It's not possible. So we have to understand, as he was saying earlier, if we're going to ask theological questions, we have to explore historical events. And to explore historical events, you have to immerse yourself in the mind of historical people who had a certain prayer book that Jesus was praying as he was on the cross. I've said a lot there, but that you, you touched on it. I just wanted to, to un- unpack it just a little bit. What questions do we have? We've got a few minutes here together. We'll just go rapid fire, quick questions, quick responses. All right. Is any, Laura's had one in there, and I want to make sure, and Laura, I will not forget you, uh, but I want to make sure others have got a chance here. So, uh, Jora, you've got a question. Oh, if it's not too complex of an answer, do we know why it's turned around to be taught that whenever Jesus died on the cross, God turned and looked away? Yeah, so if it's not too complex of an answer, she's saying, do we know why it's taught that when Jesus died on the cross that God looked away. Why is yeah, that? It, 
the easy answer is um, John Calvin. John Calvin and his institutes uh, taught that uh, that that God turned away, the, God the Father turned away from His Son uh, when He uh, when Jesus was dying. So yeah, it's all rooted in in John Calvin, who's not a bad guy. No, no, no. I like Calvin. John's not he a just, bad guy. Yeah. No, John in, Calvin's not a bad guy. He just got some things wrong. <laughs> yeah, and so, uh, but does the scripture teach? If because we, we're a people of the book, okay? Does the yeah. scripture teach that God looked away from His Son when He was on the cross? No, there's no there's no scripture that's even close to that. I can't even think of a scripture that I would have to twist out of form to make it say that. Except that God cannot that. look on sin, one which you actually said goes on to yeah, say God I, cannot look I, I, on sin and not do something about it. Why? Because God is just. So God, right. God is going to act. Yeah. But that is not to say that God cannot look on his son as he's on but the it, it So we're people of the book, which is true, but we're not Biblians, we're Christians, right? So, so the Bible's not the fourth in, member of the Trinity, you're saying? I, 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 for some people, maybe, but, uh, but so we have to start with Jesus. That's why I read you know, John 1.19. Um, that no one's ever seen God. It's it's Jesus, the the one who's close to the Father's heart. He has made him known to us. So whatever else we read in all of holy inspired scripture, we have to filter it through a bit of a Jesus lens um, because the law of the prophets is good, but they're all getting fulfilled in Jesus. He is the he's the he's what fulfills all of that. It's a little bit like um, the uh, Bruce Willis movie, The Sixth Sense. And if you haven't seen it, well, I'm not recommending it, but I am in a in my Shemlon fan. But um, and I, I'm just going to ruin. The, I, I don't want to ruin the movie. I'll just say this: at the ending of the movie, for those of you who have seen it, you know this. The ending of the movie makes you rethink the entire movie. And Jesus is like that. That Jesus, um, he's all over the Old Testament, um, but it requires seeing Jesus in his birth life death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and then looking back through that into the Old Testament. So that's um, what that's how the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament. It's not that you can't read the Old Testament without Jesus. It's just that you may not get the full the tones or notes of, of the song that's being played. So I like to say, this is such a great thought I came up with. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. I invented this thought. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We've, we haven't always known this, but now we do. Actually, his pastor was the one who coined that phrase, Brian Zahn. So God is like <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, you can steal it. Go ahead. God has always been like Jesus. There have been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but that's what the book of Hebrews and our gospels show us. God is like Jesus. If you're confused about what God is like, if you think that God is pissed off at the world, let me say that in a church way. If you think that God Woo! is angry at the world, was Jesus angry at the world? For God was so angry at the world that he sent his only son to show it how rotten it was. No, that isn't what it says. It says God loved the place. Yeah. Just like he loved in the beginning, he loved it so much. All right, another question. What else? Yes. Oh, so did Moses not see God face to face? You got to talk to the apostle John about that. That's John. That's not me. <laughs> uh, Moses, Moses saw, uh, 
Well, did he ever see God face to face? I don't think so. Uh, he was in the presence of God. Um, it was Elijah who saw his backside. Didn't Moses see his backside too? I think there was something about a rock and a cleft yeah, of the rock and a the hand rock. cover him or something. I don't know. Yeah, I think he always saw the backside. Um, yeah, but there's no, there's lots of revel, there's lots of revelations. There's a lot of people who Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the the temple. I mean, yeah, but John says, yeah, I know all that. I mean, John knew the Hebrew scriptures; he knew the Old Testament. But it's 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 like the law and the prophets are like the the stars and the moon, which are beautiful. Um, ancient sailors could navigate the seas by the stars. They're useful, but Jesus is like the rising of the sun and the brightness of Jesus um, eclipses the stars and the moon. It's literally, this happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Jesus is on the Mount and he, he, his clothes are dazzling white. He's transfigured. And who shows up Moses, the law giver and Elijah, the prototypical prophet. And when God, the father speaks, what does he say? Hey guys, build three tabernacles and listen to these guys. No, he says, this is my son. Listen to him. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we have to, we forget about Moses and Elijah or we throw the Old Testament out of our Bibles. No, I mean, I, I read from the Old Testament every day. You cannot make sense of the New Testament without the Old. We need both. But the coming of Jesus is like the rising of the sun. As a C.S. Lewis quote, I think I'll probably butcher it, but Lewis said that I believe in Jesus like the rising of the sun, not only that I see it, but by it, I see everything else. Um, I just spent time camping you know, in the back country. And uh, you, know, you have that dawn period where it, it's first light um, and you can, you, the darkness is broken. But then when the sun is up over the horizon, it changes and colors everything. And so that's really our good news is that God really is like Jesus. And the book of Hebrews, I encourage you to read it. Read it in a translation you like and read it cover to cover. Read the whole yeah. thing in one sitting with a cup of coffee or whatever preferred beverage you have. And the book of Hebrews says over and over and again, all the things of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the priests, their processes, all of that was a type or a shadow that was made according to a pattern that Moses got when he was on the mountain. So Moses is building things below based on what he saw above. And then it says, and now Jesus is in the real thing. My words, not the writer of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is in the, the, the heavenly tabernacle doing the real work of a priest, the priest whose priesthood is better than that of the Levitical order in a tabernacle that's higher and holier with a covenant and a relationship that's stronger and richer and more, that when we got to a point where the, the law, Dr. Wright says, is like a booster rocket that got us to a point, and then it fell away. And it's not like, oh, we don't need that old silly thing. It's like it served its purpose. And now 
we're in a relationship with God that does not require those types of sacrifices. You never again have to feel like God is angry with you. You never again have to feel like you have to pay penance for your sins. That Christ died according to the scriptures. And according to the book of Hebrews, he died once and for all. And he died that he might cleanse your conscience. God was not angry at Jesus, so he punished him. God was not angry at you, so he punished Jesus. He willingly laid down his life. And that's a mystery. I, I, and Derek would say this. Right. You get, you get to the point to where you say, I, I, I've learned everything I can learn about what was happening on the cross. But at the end of the day, I think it, number one, was an act of love that I can't understand. And number two, it was an act of sacrifice that I could never probe the depths of its meaning. All I can do is stand at the foot of the cross and cry holy and go, holy moly, like, I don't know. This is a mystery. This is a love I can't understand. I think what I would want you to take away from the night is God was not angry with Jesus and that God didn't have to murder Jesus so he could love you. That Christ did die for your sins, but not to appease an angry, wrathful father in heaven. The father and the son were united in their love for you. And whatever happened on the cross, the father and the son were united in their love for you. And maybe we were the ones who had the wrath that had to be satisfied. Maybe we were the ones that had the blood that needed to be shed. Maybe we were the ones that demanded an innocent person suffer. Maybe that was more about what we needed and God gave us what we needed. But we don't have to be afraid of God. And Jesus does not stand in heaven going, hey, dad, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Don't kill him. The father and the son are in agreement. You're clean. You're clean. Do we have that about right, Dr. Vreeland? Yeah, excellent. I, I would wrap it all up for those who want to keep it really simple um, and memorable to really our whole conversation. The cross does many things. But for me, two of the paramount things. One, the cross rescues us, right? It rescues us from sin and the corrupting properties of sin, that pollutant of sin. It rescues us from the power of sin. It also rescues us from death, right? So sin and death is the problem for which the cross is the solution. So the cross rescues us from sin, from death, from hell, and the cross reveals. The cross reveals what the kingdom of God, God's kingdom relationship with humanity. This is what the kingdom of lo looks like. And ultimately, this is what God looks like. What does God look like? God looks like an innocent man suffering on the cross for the sins of the world. That's how much. There's a prayer that I pray in the morning time. It comes out of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And it goes like this, um, Lord Jesus, you stretched out your, and I feel myself raising my arms because when I pray this prayer, I, I, I hold my arms out in, in that cruciform shape. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. 
so clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. As a prayer, I pray in the morning that focuses on the cross because the cross, yes, is saving me, it's rescue me, but it reveals this is how the kingdom come. It reveals this is what God is like. It also reveals this is how we should live. We should live a cross-shaped kind of life. The whole story moves toward that moment. That's it. And then from that moment on, we're being invited back into a relationship with God as it was in the beginning and as it is now. It's going to be even better in the end. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And, and one last verse before okay. your amen. You, you, you have to get one more verse in. I love the fact you love you the know, Bible. I'm uh, a preacher. All right, bring it, do. bring it. Well, it's so everyone knows John 3.16, right? Most famous verse. Everyone knows John 3.16. You can quote it. But don't forget John 3.17, right? So John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So if Jesus shows us what God is like, John 3, 17 informs us, Jesus didn't come to reveal an angry God of condemnation. Jesus came to reveal a loving God who wanted a restored kingdom relationship for all who would believe. And uh, so we need 317 along with 316. And with that, closing the book. Yeah, well, you'll keep going. And I love that about you. (laughs) Hey, The Day the Revolution Began is a great book. Okay, it's a little thick sometimes. But if you get into it and you're like, oh, this is too thick, you could pick up a copy of the book called... Oh, sorry. That's your book. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I wrote a book. Uh, N.T. Wright and the Revolutionary Cross. That's the little reader's guide I wrote for his big fat book on the tongue. Derek, thank you, my friend. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, Tommy. Thank you. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope that this conversation was enjoyable and life-giving to you. Head on over to GenuChurch.com. Find out more information on our church and services, how to get plugged in to small groups, how to find a way to serve. Until next time, Genu, we love you. Take care.